went to a museum, Red Brother. Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. We settlers, both European and from other parts of the world, will focus today on our immigrant histories, whether generations back or more recently. And we'll try to interpret these narratives in the context of larger patterns of conquest and colonization, no matter what side of that equation one's people were on. For some, mobility was voluntary, but for others, it was compulsory. What were the social, geopolitical, and ecological characteristics of our family's former home places, as well as the circumstances of leaving, whether that was opportunistic or under duress or forced. Many or most of us know only fragments of our immigrant roots, and some of us know nothing at all. And there are practical reasons for this. How traditions and memory fade over many generations, how geographical mobility scatters material legacies, and how cultural atrophy undermines curiosity about and literacy in one's own roots. But there are also ideological forces that relentlessly undermine immigrant identity, among which two deserve special warning, excuse me, special mention. First and foremost, the militant pressure on immigrants to North America to assimilate functions to discourage differences and cultural distinctiveness. Its purpose has always been to push new arrivals to adapt to dominant colonial culture's ways and to adopt its language, identities, and values. A second and related factor is the complex relationship between immigration, identity, and racial and class hierarchies in North America. In the US, for the non-indigenous majority, the tree of national identity is a strange mix of immigrant roots and anti-immigrant branches. From our inception as a nation, becoming American has entailed not only jettisoning old country ways of knowing and being, but also embracing a suspicion of immigrants who come after our settlement, and especially those of different linguistic, socioeconomic, and national origins. Moreover, the color line established by the racist system of chattel slavery and Jim Crow constructed a racial hierarchy that white and white passing settlers of all nationalities were and are encouraged to internalize. This is why over the last two centuries, immigrants of color from 19th century Chinese to 21st century Syrians have been consistently scapegoated. Similarly, the myth of middle-class prosperity teaches both fear and recrimination of poor folk, and of working-class people as well. 
who are perceived as unable or unwilling to conform to the American dream. How can one otherwise explain a family or president, he gives us so much to work with, it's just awesome, that on one hand idealizes an immigrant great-great-grandfather arriving in New York with only $10 in his pocket and eventually prospering. Yet on the other hand, with no hint of irony, demonizes Mexicans or Central Americans crossing the border into Los Angeles or El Paso today, with only the clothes on their backs. Both racial and class myths of superiority drive many settlers to try to close that door of opportunity behind their own immigrant generation, except for maybe additional family members. Another ideological force that shapes settlers is the future orientation of progressive modernism. Even if we do know something of our heritage, many of us are not that interested in exploring it because we haven't been socialized to believe that the past, we've been socialized to believe that the past is largely irrelevant to our future. We thus believe that there's little social or professional benefit to curating our immigrant identity and literacy. This ambivalence orphans us, but it is a Faustinian bargain that settler culture makes to continually erase the inconvenient history of colonization behind us in order to secure our role as noble and innocent protagonists in the national story. These are some of the key political and personal ways in which settlers of all ethnicities, but especially we of European descent, are socially formed to shrug off our immigrant past. And Ched's explored this in his book, Our God is Undocumented, for sale in the bookstore, if any of you are interested. Yeah, you had to do a little plug there. Such forces conspire to discourage us from maintaining or rehabilitating our immigrant histories and stories. The result is that we know more about and relate more intimately to the devised public narrative of being American or being Canadian than the stories of our own family and ethnic past. But here, friends, is the key. The fiction that we aren't organically connected to an immigrant past, people, and place is the foundation of all subsequent settler denials. From there, it's easy to proceed to shed and thereby exonerate ourselves from the entire history of colonization and its toxic legacy. We settlers did not just magically appear here, and we do have a responsibility to the history of which we, of which we and our people were and are a part. In the framing comments I'll give this morning, I want to do the same exercise, can I hand this to you, that you'll shortly be exploring in your cohort. We have a map on the wall for you right over there, awesome, to trace your family's immigrants' movements 
your family immigrant movements from the old country to the new. And so I invite you all um, to fill that in and we can see where we have all come from and the places where we settled. So I'll share a little bit about my paternal grandfather's family. That's my immigrant generation, highlighting the push and pull factors. Both, both sides of my family are Mennonite, a movement birthed during the 16th century Radical Reformation. By the 17th century, many had left Switzerland and the Netherlands. Some had already immigrated to the American colonies in eastern Canada, while others settled in Prussia. And that is my line, my ancestors. The late 18th century saw a major migration of Prussian Mennonites to southern Ukraine. They were invited by Catherine the Great, the Tsarina of Russia, because of their reputation as hard-working farmers who had been successful at cultivating marginal lands. Catherine granted our people religious freedom, including exemption from military service in exchange for pioneering the frontier steppe lands. Rarely mentioned by us is the fact that she granted us land that had just been cleared of indigenous Nogai, Cossacks, and Bashkirs. There, my ancestors flourished for almost 150 years in relatively autonomous German-speaking villages. But toward the end of the 19th century, the growing disparity excuse me, the growing prosperity of Mennonite villages contrasted starkly with the poverty of Russian peasants, as well as with the emerging, emerging urban industrial working class. Pro profound disparities between the landed gentry, which is includes, including some Mennonites, and the poor but energized strong political opposition movements. And World War I further exacerbated these social and economic tensions throughout the archaic czarist regime. This all came to a head in the October Revolution of 1917, led by, by Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks. After the Tsarists were overthrown, three years of civil war ensued throughout Russia and Ukraine, where fighting raged between the Bolsheviks, the white army of the Tsarist supporters, which was backed by the West, and then Ukrainian nationalist and anarchist armies. Mennonite villages were targeted during these years because of their German language and sympathies, uh, their material prosperity, and the fact that as pacifists, they did not fight back, except for one notorious example, and we don't have time. All for, but we all should have time for, or us Mennonites should have time for that. All four of my grandparents were among the 22,000 refugees from the Russian Revolution and the Civil War who escaped to Canada in the 1920s. They described this time, um, they called it Tsarisenheit, the time of being torn apart. Last summer, Chad and I traveled to Alberta and Saskatchewan to interview elderly aunts and uncles of my Enns clan. The first of our many conversations was with 92-year-old Peter Enns, the third of my father's eight siblings and the first born in Canada. Peter's failing health had pushed us to make this trip, and it was a holy time as he passed just two weeks after we left. As he spoke of his parents, he was overwhelmed 
by emotion at several points. And then similar tearful interludes punctuated uh, all of the subsequent interviews with my normally taciturn aunts and uncles. Clearly, we were seeing the footprints of intergenerational trauma. Franz Entz, my grandfather, and his parents were part of the first wave of Mennonite settlers moving from Ukraine to Ufa, uh, the Ufa region, region of Russia. There they developed a successful farm estate until the 1917 revolution. After several local landowners had been shot by peasant rebels demanding money, my grandfather's parents fled to nearby Davlakanovo, leaving my grandfather, who was then 27 years old, and his younger sister, Anna, to manage the farm. In 1920, my grandfather recalled, murder and execution were the order of the day. The communists arrived at our farm and took everything livestock, machinery, grain, contents of the house, even the farmhands. My sister and I were each allowed to take a bed, a chair, and a table, and then ordered to leave. Where we were to go was none of their concern." End quote. It was not the last time my grandfather would have to flee. As economic difficulties under the new Soviet regime deepened, and after his brothers immigrated to Mexico, my grandfather sold everything that was left at auction. After numerous bureaucratic delays, he and my grandmother, pregnant with the aforementioned Peter and their two young boys, procured paperwork to leave for Canada in March of 1927. They landed in the small town of Glidden, Saskatchewan with Katarina's entire family. My grandfather's parents and siblings, however, were not so fortunate. In 1928, Russia closed its borders, refusing to let any more of its citizens to leave. The fates of my grandpa's eight siblings under Stalin's Soviet Union suffice as a grim portrait of the Tsarisenheit. Circled first are Franz and his parents. Then we have Johan, Grandpa's oldest brother had his farm confiscated by Soviet authorities in 1929. Driven off, the family was driven off with only the clothes on their backs. He was imprisoned for two year years and died shortly thereafter. His family evacuated to Siberia. Peter was forced off his farm in 1925 with no recompense and emigrated to Mexico and then to Canada. Bernhardt, though a civil, civic official in Golishevo, had his house commandeered and then confiscated by the government. In 1924, he emigrated to Mexico, but after two years of trying to build a farm there, he and Peter judged that the political situation was too unstable and moved to Manitoba, Canada. En route, his wife Elizabeth gave birth on the train and their baby died three days later. Grandpa's oldest sister, Agatha, lost her farm and cheese factory in 1929 to a collective farm. Her family ended up in Siberia, where her husband was arrested in 1941 and died in prison. Her children were drafted into the notorious Soviet work armies during World War II. Helena moved in the wake of multiple family farm confiscations and ended up in Grad Gradovka, where her husband worked in a coal mine until he was expelled without explanation. They too went to Siberia, where the KGB arrested their eldest son in 1937, who was never seen again. 
Katarina and her family were forced off the farm. Her husband was arrested in the late 1930s and never heard from again. She too was evacuated to Siberia. Anna, after being forced off the farm with my grandfather, saw her husband Johan, Johan die the day their daughter was born. She died in 1929 with no details of how or why. Finally, Grandpa's youngest sibling, Greta, worked as a domestic. Her husband of nine months was arrested by the KGB and died in prison in 1941, though he had not been convicted of wrongdoing. She labored on a state farm until 1941, when she and other people of German ancestry were ex exiled to Siberia, given one night to pack. Her daughter Hilda, Hilda spent 10 years in a Soviet work army. In sum, every single member of my grandfather's immediate family was dispossessed and displ displaced in the years following the revolution. And those who remained in Russia endured arrests, disappearances, relocations, and death. It is little wonder that grandpa's children all characterized their father as stern, which was certainly how I also experienced him. He and my grandma eventually moved up to Kert River, Saskatchewan, and through the dirty 30s, were able to build a farm that remains in the family. I enjoyed many family gatherings on that farm, where my urban dwelling father could reunite with his siblings. But after moving to Saskatoon in their later years, my grandmother appeared haunted, as evidenced by this picture here. She too had endured many losses. Her younger brother, Jacob, was killed in 1919 in Russia, likely from political violence. None of her aunts, uncles, or cousins made it out. Her oldest sister, Maria, suffered from a mental disorder caused, they say, by a broken heart when she left her love in Russia. I don't know all of the violence my grandmother experienced, but I do know she saw soldiers hold a gun to her husband's head on three different occasions. I don't know whether she endured sexual violence as many of those women did. I do know that after Grandpa died, she struggled with hallucinations, imagining that Russian soldiers were sitting in her living room, threatening to take her back to Russia. My mother's parents endured similar violence during the Tsarisen Height, which traumatized that entire generation. But as a child, when I would inquire about these matters, my grandparents spoke only about the vast abundance and beauty of the old country, shielding me from their pain. As I grew older, I began to realize what they had endured and wondered how were family decisions made to flee or stay? How did they process so much pain and fear and violence? There was no such thing as post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis back then. What psychic wounds did they carry as immigrant, as immigrant baggage to Canada? Many of these questions remain unanswered. My grandparents' generation, of course, is long gone, but I carry these legacies deep in my bones, and our book project is, in part, my attempt to come to terms with that. Seeds of what, seeds of a call were planted in me decades ago to become what Lotum Gladi and Therese Bell call, quote, a rememberer, one of those who have the traumatic event registered in their consciousness without actually having experienced it themselves. The second circle of witnesses 
to the violent experience, end quote. As I'll share tomorrow, my grandparents and their traumatized refugee compatriots settled on the Canadian prairies, right next to indigenous communities that had endured a much longer history and continuing reality of violence and dispossession. My discipleship of decolonization commits me to remembering both of these legacies of loss, as well as of resilience and survival. The work of digging into our settler storylines is analogous to an archaeologist trying to read pot shards, in this case, fragments of our own ancestry. We typically only know pieces of our family and communal stories, what was thought worthy to record or pass down orally, and even less about their social and historical context. So we face many of the archaeologists' dilemma. For one, potsherds have often been moved out of their original setting, disconnected from other artifacts that might tell a fuller story. Moreover, these pieces lie in wider generational and geographic strata that also need to be understood. For another, we may be digging in unwelcome territory running into family resistance or going against the grain of local history or encountering our own sadness or paralysis from what we're learning. Participants in the Landlines, Bloodlines, Songlines workshops often struggle to piece together fragments of their family's story, frustrated by, both by how and what they do know and why and what they don't know about their immigrant settler past. And in particular, the silences weigh heavily. For all its difficulty, however, this work has the power to change how we see things, personally and politically. Few face as many challenges in the work of exhuming ancestry as do African Americans given the violent disappearing suppression and obfuscation of black family and cultural history by centuries of chattel slavery. Yet Alex Haley's Roots, the Saga of an American Family, provides an exemplary illustration of the power of this work and its public consequences. If you have not read that book, pick it up. At the end of his riveting, almost 900-page tome, Haley includes a description of the hard work of 12 years of his research, interviews, sifting through archives. He took the journey from his home place to America on one of those ships. Africa, thank you. In the bottom of the ship, as his ancestors would have been carried, trying to piece together seven generations of his forebearers. Roots had a watershed impact. As Michael Eric Dyson notes, quote, it taped, tapped deeply into the black American hunger for an African ancestral home that had been ravaged by centuries of slavery and racial dislocation. It also prodded white America to reject the racial amnesia that fed its moral immaturity and its racial irresponsibility. 
Then Dyson concludes, Roots was a soulful reminder that unless we grappled with the past, we would be, would we, we would be forever saddled by its deadening liabilities. We believe that white settlers, too, can animate powerful changes of consciousness and practice by doing our own roots work and thereby reconstruct a revised history in order to make possible a different future. Why did our ancestors leave their home place? Most people do not easily abandon land, homes, and family, forsaking the place of their community story and where their people were born and buried. Immigration is rarely like embarking on a grand adventure, even if it is characterized as such in retrospect. And it is never like taking a holiday. Rather, deracination, being pulled up by the roots and relocation to unknown lands half a world away is full of loss, uncertainty, and risk. And prior to the 20th century, it often entailed a permanent separation from kin and culture. In most cases, it was larger forces that either pushed or pulled our people to make the long, difficult journey to North America, such as war, colonial conquest, slavery and displacement, economic hardship, including debt servitude. And today, climate crisis. And of course, we could spend a lot of time talking about each of these. But not all of these, all circumstances of uprooting are equivalent. Here is a slide of four basic types working slide, which reflect fundamental differences in the social power of the migrant, placed along a spectrum of volition, that is, uh, people's willingness to move from their home country to another, and it's moving from greatest to least. Many people of racial or economic privilege today have ancestral immigration stories characterized by the first two types whereas the latter two remain the reality of all poor immigrants. So my move from Canada to the U.S. was opportunist. My grandparents' migration reflected a mix of the third and fourth types. Whatever the circumstances of immigration, every migrant leaves behind who, where, and what shaped them, and in most cases forever, at least prior to the last quarter century. They leave behind home places. It is so difficult to decide to leave one's hearth. Few immigrants uproot voluntarily and without regret. Though in our hyper-modern era of globalized mobility, this is changing among those with means. There's also a toll from the immigration journey itself from the drama of departure to the difficulties of transit to the uncertainties of arrival. In political contexts of turmoil and distress, procuring travel papers is problematic or impossible, which can result in some family members being left behind. When my N's grandparents decided to make their way to Canada in 1926, they sold what possessions they had left, hoping to be on their way to Canada quickly but their exit visas were mysteriously canceled. 
Even with the resources to hire a lawyer, it still took over a year of living in limbo before they got documents to leave. The journey for them was taxing. They and other Mennonites were boarded onto boxcars at the Lichtenau train station in Ukraine. Women sewed money and gerösteta svibak, that's twice-baked buns, dehydrated buns, into their clothes to sustain the family on their journey. They knew that during the six-day trip to the Latvian border, the trains would be searched repeatedly by soldiers looking, for con looking to confiscate possessions and cash, or worse, to remove their military-aged sons. When they passed through the Red Gate at the border, they wept for joy. Yet in England, a quarter of the refugees were held back as medically unfit. Then came a 10-day boat journey to eastern Canada, followed by a long train trip to the prairies. It was a very rough journey for my grandma Entz, who was pregnant with my uncle Peter and had two small sons to care for. By the time they reached Saskatchewan, many had been stripped of all possessions, food, and money. As a general rule, the fewer physical belongings refugees are able to bring with them, the more psychological baggage they carry. Many hard-pressed refugees also bear the crippling debt from their migrant journey. Today, undocumented migrants pay exorbitant fees to coyotes to facilitate their passage across the southern U.S. border. <clears throat> My grandparents, like two, some two-thirds of the other Mennonite immigrants to Canada, shouldered a Reiselschuld, which is a travel debt. Obviously, indebtedness disadvantages new immigrants economically. Many of the young Mennonite women, including my maternal grandmother, had to work as exploitable domestic servants in Canada to pay off family debt. Finally, immigrants bring different domestic practices to their new places, which are often perceived with hostility by neighbors or, or discouraged or even prohibited by schools or hospitals. The newcomers must make a myriad adjustments to the new social universe and in the process, inevitably question how much to keep of their culture. The alienation that comes with such experiences often presents through depression, mental illness, abuse, addiction, and family fracturing. But such first-generation challenges often get lost as assimilation takes hold and memory fades, such that descendants underestimate the toll of immigration particularly if the wear and tear of that adaptation disappears beneath heroic, retrospective narratives. These are just some of the dynamics and issues associated with the storylines of immigrants. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Oh.